Good morning. My name is Mindy. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children preschool through fourth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the front of the room to join Kid Jock outside. As you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, again. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons. It's great to be worshiping with you this morning. As always, um, as we enter into this moment of hearing from the Lord, I want to invite you into a moment of pause and reflection so that you can allow yourself to be more open and receptive to what God would have for you this morning. So let's go, to the get, go together before the Lord and some silent reflection right now. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would focus our minds and prepare our hearts to receive your word today. Help us receive your words that we might praise you and manifest your glory in this world and to our neighbors and those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. 
So I like listening to podcasts, and the podcast that I find really interesting personally is Hidden Brain. Uh, in Hidden Brain, they explore all of these sort of interesting and fascinating ways that human beings work. Like, how do we work in this world? I was listening the other day, and they were sharing the story of an online furniture design company. It was a really cool concept. Instead of just picking out a couch that had already sort of been created, and you just find the one that you like, you actually get to design your own custom couch. You get to build it and make it and purchase it. It was a really cool idea, and it was a hit. People were logging on. People were designing their own couches, especially really young people. They were spending hours creating custom furniture, something that they loved. But then, for some reason, they would get to the end, and they wouldn't actually purchase the couch. They'd get to that very last step, and they wouldn't buy it. And the company was confused. Like, why are they not buying these couches? It's like such a good idea. Why are people walking away? They lowered prices. People still walked away. What was wrong with the couch process? Well, it turned out that people didn't know how to get rid of their existing couches. There wasn't an easy, reliable, affordable way to get rid of a couch in Chicago at that time. So the company offered to pick up and remove existing couches as part of the buying process. And just like that, sales jumped. We are resistant to change. We tend to favor what's familiar. We prefer the systems that we're in, even if making a change has an enormous benefit to ourselves. We get stuck so to speak, in our old couches. <laughs> something can be the greatest idea in the world, but we can't add something new often until we get rid of something old that's taking up space in our lives. And if we struggle this much updating our home decor, how much harder is it to make a bigger change in our life? When I went to college, my plan was to figure out my major at a less expensive state school, the University of Missouri, and then transfer to a school that sort of had a specialty in my major and that was considered elite in that field and complete my degree there. But I just stayed at Missouri. <laughs> Once I started down a path, it was just easier to keep going rather than change schools and change friends and change color schemes and leave everything that was familiar about my life. Even though it might have been good for me, it was just too hard to leave my couch. Familiar? Anyone out there like this ring familiar? All right, so... I think that we probably all struggle to some degree with making changes and get stuck in our own ways. Now imagine someone saying, hey, let's turn your whole world, not just your couch, not just your car, let's change your whole world upside down and just shake it like a snow globe. Like, you want to be in on that? How many couches would we have to move if someone invited us into that kind of total transformation? And what would it take if we changed something even bigger about our lives? <clears throat> We're in a series right now on the Gospel of John called Come and See and Stay. These are three actions that we've identified as key characteristics of discipleship. Come and see and then stay. Already in the Gospel, we've seen several people come and see Jesus, and they decided to stay and to follow. Today, we're going to look at someone, Nicodemus, who did the opposite. He came to Jesus, he saw and experienced Jesus, and then he walked away. And I can't help but wonder why. Maybe the cost was just too high for him. When it comes to Nicodemus, I have to admit, I really like Nicodemus when I read about him in the Gospels. I feel for him. I'm very sympathetic to him. I mean, think about it. He's a Pharisee. Jesus calls him actually the teacher of Israel in our text. And yet here he is coming to Jesus with questions. He's curious. He wants to know. He needs to know who this person is and what he's talking about. And I think that just took a lot of courage for him, which is one of the reasons I like Nicodemus so much. But he's also really fearful, which is why he comes in the middle of the night, so that no one will see him and start asking him 
a whole bunch of questions. Questions about his loyalty or his competency. I mean, it doesn't look good for the teacher of Israel to come in the middle of the night to seek answers from a street rabbi from Nazareth, does it? So you get the sense that Nicodemus is established. He's arrived. He's influential. He has power. He's respected. He's a titan in his field. And I also get the sense that he's probably older than maybe some of the disciples that we've seen decide to follow Jesus at this point. And I think the older we get, the more stuck we can get in our ruts and our couches. If he were to switch course at his age and at his station, it would be like starting over again. It would be that total transformation that we're talking about. And yet he can't shake the feeling that there is something special about Jesus, so he comes to see for himself. And their conversation at first starts out really respectfully. Nicodemus is willing to admit that Jesus is sent by God. He's willing to admit that God is with him. And right away, in response to that opening salvo, Jesus jumps into the deep waters and says in verse 3, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus is pretty confused here. How can someone be born again? How can someone go back into their mother's womb? And here's an instance where I think we see Nicodemus being stuck in a rut. When Jesus says born again, he's using a word that can definitely be born again, as in born a second time. That's its more conventional sense of the word, and that's how Nicodemus interprets it. Clearly, a person cannot be born again in that sense. You can't go back and do it again a second time. But it can also mean born not again, but born from above. Jesus isn't saying that you need to be born again in the same way as before. Jesus is saying that you need to be born from a different place than you were before. You can have a new life that comes not from a human life, but that comes from God. Jesus goes on to elaborate, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. There's a lot of debate over that phrase, like what is he talking about, water and spirit? There's a lot of words that have been spilt over understanding that phrase. If we go back to other places in the scripture where water and spirit are discussed together, I think it helps us understand maybe what Jesus is getting at here. It's passages like Ezekiel 36 where God describes the total transformation that we've been talking about this morning. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. We read, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit, spirit, in you. I will take out your stony heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So it seems that the new birth Jesus is talking about here involves water to make them clean and a new spirit to make their hearts responsive, to get get them out of their old ways and to make them flexible enough to change and to keep on changing so they can obey God and be God's people here on this earth. Of course, Nicodemus must have thought he was already doing that. His whole life as a Pharisee was built around obeying God's commands. His job was to understand God and perform tasks so that other people could also understand and be acceptable to God. His job was to know the way. He has to assume that if anyone in the world was going to see the kingdom of God, he was going to see the kingdom of God. He was the teacher of Israel. But here's Jesus saying, no, Nicodemus, you're not actually as safe as you think you are. You must be born in this new way. You must be born of the Spirit. Meaning, it's not something that you can do. It's something that only God can do. And with just these few sentences, Jesus has taken Nicodemus' life and just turned it upside down and shook it. 
It's that terrifying feeling that we sometimes get when we wonder if we've been wrong about something our whole lives. The terrifying, gripping feeling, have I been wrong my whole life? This is especially scary when it comes to our religious beliefs, the things we think about God and we think about ourselves and other people. These are our core beliefs. They're deeply ingrained in us. They're part of our our identity. And when someone threatens one of those core beliefs, we instantly get defensive and we typically fight back. That's our knee-jerk reaction when someone challenges a core belief. It reminds me of the movie Inside Out. You guys seen Inside Out? So Riley in the movie is an 11-year-old girl. She's dealing with a lot of change in her life. Her family's moving across the country to start over again. The movie allows us to see how she's processing the change through the lens of her inner core emotions. So we have joy and disgust and anger and sadness and fear. And these characters are all personified as cartoon characters. We learn in the movie that Riley's identity comes from her core memories, these super important moments in her life. For instance, when she scored her first hockey goal, it became a part of her core memories. And it formed a huge part of who she was. And all of a sudden, Hockey Island existed in her mind, in her heart. In addition to Hockey Island, Riley also has Honesty Island and Friendship Island and Goofball Island and Family Island. And for her, they all formed part of her identity. These were who she was. And the crux of the whole movie is that her early core memories, and thus her whole identity of personality, her whole, all of her islands, they're built upon and created by joy. But when her family moves, Riley starts to experience sadness. And she doesn't know what to do with this new feeling of sadness. Joy, who's always been in charge of Riley's life, views sadness as an enemy that she needs to resist and to fight against. But it doesn't work. So instead of protecting her, Joy's suppression of sadness actually results in all of the islands of Riley's personality crumbling until she doesn't know who she is anymore. At that point in the movie, Joy surrenders and gives up trying. And she lets sadness have control of Joy's life. And sadness then works with Joy to create new core memories. And Riley ends up with all new islands of personality, including a new family island that's larger and more honest than the first one ever was. Because she's able to accept that sometimes families feel sad. And that's okay. It's a really beautiful story. Riley's life is fuller and healthier when she opens herself up to the sadness that she's been scared to feel. And when she stops fighting herself, when she lets go of what's familiar, she becomes a more whole and complete person. I see a similar internal conflict, I think, in Nicodemus. Confronted with the possibility that what he's always believed was at best only part of the story, he doesn't know how to respond. He's baffled, he's confused, he's totally disoriented, and he asks, how are these things possible? How are these things possible, Jesus? I don't know what to do anymore. Jesus responds to him, you're the teacher, you're the Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? And I've always actually kind of read this as a rebuke, like Jesus is exasperated with Nicodemus at this point. Like he's saying, you're supposed to be smart, and yet you're a dummy. That's how I've read it. (laughs) But I actually wonder if Jesus is more sad than angry here. You're supposed to know these things, and yet you don't. You're supposed to know these things, and yet you don't. And then he gives us another one of those truly, truly amen, amen statements that we're supposed to pay a lot of attention to in verse 11. He says, we tell you what we've known, what we know, and what we have seen, and yet you won't believe us. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe when I tell you about heavenly things? 
Nicodemus has some kind of roadblock in his life, something that's preventing him from moving forward. It's like he and Jesus are walking together and doing just fine, and then Jesus goes across a road, and Nicodemus cannot go across the road with him. He stays on this side. He's stuck here. So what could he be stuck on? What is he afraid of? Verse 13, this is Jesus still speaking. Jesus says, no one has ever gone to heaven in return, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus would be the link between heaven and earth. He was the key to all of this understanding. So in other words, he's saying, Nicodemus, I know this is really hard, but I'm here. I'm the key. I'm here to help you in a way that no one else can. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So this is a reference to a famous story from the Torah. In Numbers 21, God's people were besieged by poisonous snakes. They prayed to God, and God told Moses to fashion a snake out of bronze and to put it up on a pole. You know, usually in the Old Testament, for healing to happen or for restoration to happen, there had to be physical contact with the object, with an object that would sort of absorb um, their sin or their ailments. They had to lay hands on an animal's head. They had to, blood had to be sprinkled on them from a sacrifice. But in this story, the people were healed without any physical contact. It was a special, miraculous, and mysterious kind of salvation. They were healed merely by seeing the snake. And it was like that again, Jesus is saying. People are again sick. They are again suffering, but not from a poisonous snake. They're suffering from a deeper spiritual darkness that will lead to spiritual death. But, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up in the same manner. And everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Which brings us to John 3.16. You've probably never heard it before. <laughs> For this is how God loves the world. He gave his one and only son so that, who, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We hear that and we think, amen, right? Give me a sign. Take me to a sporting event. I'll hold it up. Nicodemus, however, I think would have heard those words and found it really tough to accept them. God loves the world? The world. Are you sure about that, Jesus? If you look at all the times in the Gospel of John where Jesus, in the Gospel of John where John uses the word the world, like what does he mean by the world? It's clear that as you study it that he means all those who are in opposition to God. Like that's who God loves. All those who are in opposition to God. If God loves the world, then God loves those who stand against him. God loves all those who don't love God. And all those who don't love God, who decide to believe in Jesus, they're the ones that are going to be saved. And I think that all might have been one of the couches Nicodemus couldn't get out of. You see, that wasn't the Jewish system. The Jews were God's chosen people, remember? They were special. If anyone was saved in the world, it was the Jews. If anyone else was saved in the world, it was through the Jews and the blessing they provided to the rest of the world. All of the Jewish core identities, core memories, hinged on God treating them as a special possession. God didn't love the world. God loved the Jewish people. It was them and God against the world. But John writes, God loves the world. God loves those who are set against him, which means that God loves the Romans, the horrible, evil, oppressive Romans and the Macedonians before that, and the Babylonians before that, and the Ninevites, and the Assyrians, and the Philistines, and the Canaanites before that. God loves all of them. This is something that would have been offensive and inconceivable 
for Jews like Nicodemus. To accept that God might love the Romans, that's a pretty big ask for Nicodemus. God was supposed to judge their enemies. But in the very next verse, John writes that the Son didn't come to judge, but to save the world. God didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. All who looked on the snake were healed. All who believed in the Son of Man had eternal life. All. The Messiah wasn't just for them. He was for all. God's forgiveness, God's love, God's grace was deep enough for all. You know, I wonder if Nicodemus assumed that his standing with God was based upon his heritage, his status, his education, his professionalism, his expertise. Jesus said that his standing with God was based entirely upon God's gift to him. That God loved him so much that he sent his son. It was as if he is saying, Nicodemus, accept God's grace for you. And accept that God's grace is also for all. For Nicodemus to accept that would have totally upended and transformed his world. And I think it would have made him more complete, more whole as a person. He would have been freed by God's grace to love himself and to love others the way that God did. So I think one invitation for us this morning to consider is what gets us stuck? Like, where are we stuck when it comes to following Jesus? What are we stuck on? Maybe like Nicodemus, we judge others quickly or we think of ourselves too highly and we can't grasp the depth of God's grace, that it's for all. We're stuck in this limited view of God's love. Maybe we judge ourselves We're stuck in shame, and we can't really imagine that God notices us or really cares about us or really seeks us out or really chooses us. God would never do that. Maybe we feel like we don't have time in our day to spend with Jesus. Other things feel more pressing and more important and more urgent, and so we're stuck in our routines and our self-inflicted busyness. Maybe we feel like Jesus is calling us to something that would uproot and turn over our whole lives, and we can't just embrace that kind of change. It's too scary. So we're stuck in our comfort zones. How do we get unstuck? Just a few ideas. I think like Nicodemus, we can go to Jesus with questions and a willingness to learn. Despite his age, despite his status, he was curious. He was willing to listen and admit that he was confused. He was willing to be uncomfortable in order to get closer to Jesus and closer to the truth. So I think curiosity is a huge and important part of what we bring to the table, to be curious, to ask questions and ask them honestly. Humility is also so important. Willingness to say, I might be wrong. I might be wrong about this. As I look back at my own areas of growth in Christ, at the ways that I've changed or come to different understandings or stances on complex issues, it's only happened when I've faced the fear that I might be wrong about something. I might be wrong. Humility. Next, we have time. This is such a cool part of this story. Jesus gives us time. Instead of pressing Nicodemus in this moment, he gave him something to chew on, and then he let him leave. We see Nicodemus later in the gospel two more times, and it seems like he's grown more sympathetic to Jesus. He defends Jesus in front of his own peers when there's questioning, and at the very end of the gospel, he's the one that buys the ointments and spices to anoint Jesus' body after the crucifixion. It was a giant amount of money that he spent. Clearly, he is still thinking about Jesus. Maybe he's even following Jesus by that point. So we need to give ourselves time to. I've shared this before, but 
Um, I spent two years asking God about gender and the roles of men and women in the church. Two years. And I was thankful to be part of a church hierarchy that gave me time to process without putting too much pressure on me in the, in the meantime. And I now believe that God calls men and women to both serve out of their giftings and all roles and all decision-making tables in the church. But it took me time to get there. It took me and Megan 18 months to decide to leave Missouri and come back to Massachusetts to church plant. It took us five years to have the confidence and stability in our lives to become a foster family. It takes time. In addition to giving ourselves time to process and grow, the other thing that really gets me unstuck is when I'm confident in the one who is calling. If someone shady or sneaky or incompetent was like, hey, come follow me, there's like no chance I'm going with that person. <laughs> but if it's Jesus, if I'm confident that it's Jesus saying, trust me, follow me, come with me, then usually, with enough time, I can get off the couch and I can move forward. How we hear from the Lord in that discernment process is a whole different sermon, but I think part of it is being really intentional and setting aside time to go before the Lord to pray and to listen. Over time, I think, as we're open and curious, the Spirit will lead us in the way that we should go. I think the Spirit will lead us and convict us in the way that we should go. Another part of hearing from God is seeking the counsel and advice of people who know and love Jesus and prioritize following Jesus. In other words, I need people who will push me to Christ and not just tell me what I want to hear. Friends often want us to feel better, so they tell us what we want to hear. Really great friends want us to follow Jesus, and they know that if we do, that's how we become a more whole and complete person. So they'll tell us how to follow Jesus, and they'll stick with us as the path gets hard and those crosses that we carry get heavy. This is the way that so many of you have come alongside my family over the past few weeks, and we're grateful. There's no way around it. Change is really hard. Growing hurts. Growing hurts. Our couches are very comfortable. But we have time, and we're not alone. And Jesus is always out in front of us, not telling us to go over there, but he's out in front saying, hey, follow me. He always goes first into whatever it is. He doesn't just tell us, but he shows us the way. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I'm so thankful this morning that you came into this world to help get us unstuck from all the ways that we fall into complacency, all the ways we get comfortable, all of our fears that mount in our lives that we can't see where you're calling us or we can't get there. It just feels too hard, too challenging. There are too many roadblocks. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to each of us some of the things that might be holding us back, some of the things that we might be stuck on. They are different and specific to each of our circumstances and situations. But I'm confident that you are calling each of us, that you are beckoning each of us to come follow you. Give us the confidence and assurance that we have time, that you're not in a hurry, that you give us what we need, and that you always go first. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen.